Welcome back to Pancreas Pals, a podcast by diabetics for diabetics. I'm Emily, a writer and editor. And I'm Miriam, a licensed mental health counselor. We're just two women trying to live our best diabetic lives. While it might not always be easy due to the literal highs and lows, it always helps to have a pancreas pal to turn to. Hello, and welcome to Pancreas Pals. I'm Emily, a writer. And I'm Miriam, a licensed mental health counselor. We're just two type 1 diabetics trying to live our best lives. It's not always easy with the literal highs and lows, but it does help to have a pancreas pal to turn to. Hey guys, welcome to Pancreas Pals. Emily here. And Miriam. And this week's very special guest comes to us from across the pond, if you're in the U.S., although we have a lot of listeners who aren't, so LOL to that, but his name is Dan at T1D underscore Dan on Instagram. Welcome, Dan. Thank you. Thanks for having me and inviting me on. We are honored to have you. So there is so much to your story that we could we could delve into um everyone go follow him if you don't get everything like we just can't cover everything in this 30 minute podcast so be sure to follow him and him on instagram and check out his podcast which is at talking type one podcast um so dan just to kick us off you want to share your diagnosis story yeah sure so i was diagnosed in august 1996 when i was 10 years old um a really short version of the story is it was the summer holidays um and I was drinking a lot but my family didn't really think much of it because it was hot and we were I I was just drinking so that was kind of normal and then my aunt took um, my cousins and myself to the cinema I was really unwell and went home still unwell and then in the evening my mum called the emergency doctor to come to our house he tested my blood sugar levels and said you need to take him to accident and emergency so the emergency room now uh, was in there for a number of hours knowing that something was wrong but not really knowing what was wrong and then the doctor said you've got diabetes and I was in hospital I think for about a week or two afterwards and yeah that's that's kind of the my diagnosis story I wasn't in um I'd I'd never lost consciousness or had any sort of um experience like that I yeah I was conscious through the whole whole thing and um yeah just into a a new world as it as it were Do you feel, was your family familiar with type 1 diabetes? Did you have any relatives or had you known anyone or was this a brand new thing? So this was um, a brand new thing for my my whole family. So I was, yeah, I was the first one to be diagnosed with type 1. And I don't know of any family members back then who had type 2 diabetes. Um, Mm My aunt when she was um, pregnant with my my younger, my cousin did have gestational diabetes. Um, but again, that was a bit later on, I think. I can't mm-hmm. really remember. And not fully related. So, I mean, there's just so many types of diabetes. They yeah. can lead to different things, but mm-hmm. it's just wild to 
whenever there's like some kind of connection in the family, even if there isn't a connection, I feel like I'm always like, oh my God, my mom had elevated blood sugars once. Maybe that's why I have type one, but it's like also not. So I'm yeah. always reminding myself to take a deep breath. Yeah, <laughs> Go ahead, sometimes it's just pure randomness. So Dan, I'm curious, you know, spending, you spend a week or two in the hospital. Um, do you feel like the doctors knew what was going on. Did they seem confident? Um, I know we've heard some stories of people being diagnosed and the doctors like sent them home without insulin. So I, I'm curious how, how your journey into this was. Obviously, you're still a kid, um, but whatever you remember, it's, it's very interesting for us. And dealing with the NHS, the national healthcare system in the UK, which is like a whole different perspective on its own. Mm-hmm. Yes. So... I don't remember too much from when I left hospital, um, but I would definitely say that when it came to insulin and um, back then it was the blood. um, So I didn't have a blood sugar monitor. I had blood test strips Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. on the side of the tube, you could only have levels that are, I don't know, 7, 10, 13. It was like a key on the side. So I definitely had all of the um, equipment that I that I needed at the time. The okay. real change for me was going back to school after the summer holidays and going back and being different to my, or feeling different to my friends yeah. because I was dealing with having a, a hypo and having to go and get hypo treatment from the cupboard that was in the in the classroom, which I never had to do before and had to worry about all of the, these other things. But um, so, so yeah, so I can't remember too much mm-hmm. with the NHS. Do you want me to talk about my experience over the years or? Yeah, let's, let's go into it. Just, can I just clarify something yeah. real quick for the listeners that aren't familiar that there is a different measurement system outside of the U.S., much like everything else. The U.S. decided to have a different measurement system for blood sugar. So when we say 7 to 10, we don't mean 7 to 10 um, like U.S. numbers. It's 7 to 10 MMOL. I don't know how you guys is I don't know what it stands for. I have to Google that. Sorry, everyone's knowing my ignorance right now. But it is a different measurement. He wasn't at like seven US terms, like AKA would have been dead. Very yeah. different. Please continue. <laughs> That's right. And um, I have to do the same thing on my podcast as well. But one guest did actually teach me a good conversion. So when I say yes. seven, if you just times that by 18, then you get um, the, the US yes, version. Yes. Oh, interesting. That's it's it. D- Easy enough. Oh, that's really good. Okay, wow. Good Here we go. Yeah. If only the metric system had something like that. Am I, I right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, another joke. Please continue. <laughs> um, so so with regards to the, the the NHS, so the healthcare system over here, first and foremost, it's it's a great system because fundamentally healthcare is essentially free. And um, not wanting to sound um, like I don't have to pay for insulin or anything like, but I don't have to. We don't have to pay for <laughs> insulin, and I didn't mean. I realized as I said that how that. But so we, I've never had to pay for insulin. I've never had to worry about the essential basic supplies mm-hmm. that I need to look after my type one, which I'm very very fortunate to be in that position, and to have a healthcare system that does provide that. And as much as it does provide that, the system also does come with its 
its issues as well. And mm-hmm. I think particularly being type one and trying to navigate the system is what I found over the years is that I've had to be my own advocate when it comes to certain aspects of what I need when it comes to looking after myself better, say with type one. So for mm-hmm. example, to get an insulin pump, I had to lead that conversation with my uh, diabetic nurse mm-hmm. and say, these are the reasons why I think a an insulin pump would be beneficial to me. And there's also a, uh, we've got, a, a, oh, I'm trying to think of the word, um, an organisation called NICE, so that stands for National Institute for Clinical Excellence. So what they do is they provide guidelines to the NHS when it comes to rec- treatment recommendation and their guidelines are all around evidence-based um they're all evidence-based so Mm -hmm. when it comes to say getting an insulin pump you needed to have a one of the criteria was having a hba1c above 8.5 percent so despite trying to manage your type 1 when it comes to mdi and that's the criteria that i fell under because for many years I wasn't able to look after myself the best I could when it came to type one. But even though I met that criteria, it was still having to have that conversation with my nurse to almost convince my nurse that I was eligible to be put forward to have an Mm. insulin pump because what comes with that is, well, are you going to use it? We don't want to put you forward for it if you aren't going to, to use it because it's a waste of time and resources And also up to that point, throwing something else into the mix is that insulin pumps were sold to me when I was younger as, oh, only if you're a bad diabetic, then you have an insulin pump. So I also had that in my mind going into this conversation Mm. and trying to manage the system that way. I, there are also, there are also postcode lotteries when it comes to, access to diabetes technology so even though certain pieces of technology are available to the on the NHS based on where you live so you could live in say North London and you could have access to a certain insulin pump you could live in East London and not have access to that insulin pump you you could live two people could live one road away from each other one could have access to something and one could not based on um again their their postcode so there's also that to deal with when it comes to the 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 healthcare system and the nhs Mm. and there's issues when it comes to to funding and related that to diabetes technology issues is a nice word that is like i mean i guess it's easier grass is always greener and we don't have any funding like we're all unless you're on our national well, I guess we don't have national, what's the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, or, you know, on state type of insurance, even then the coverage and out-of-pocket pays are insane and exorbitant, but in, it has its own kind of geopolitical and uh, monetary issues with that. But at least, I guess, the thought that you're reliant on your postal code to and the, the resources within that postal code I'm assuming is a, a factor in that yeah so we have um they're called CCG so they're called um, clinical commission groups mm-hmm. and so 
take my funding for my insulin pump, the case had to be submitted to the clinical commissioning group for that group to either approve or deny the request for funding for me to have my my insulin pump. There's a lot more information out there in terms of how the clinical, the CCGs work. And mm-hmm. if anyone is interested, I would say Google it. I don't feel qualified <laughs> yeah. enough no, to yeah. go so into the depth it, of it. So, um, yeah. Yeah, it just sounds like every everything is a fight. Everything has to be very fiercely advocated for. And there's like a million loops you have to go through just to get a piece of technology that is technically available. And so, yeah, it's a headache to to say the least. But and I'm curious about these postal codes. Is there rationale for what's available in each in each area? Is that based on socioeconomic status? Is that based on something, or it's just totally random? I don't want to pigeonhole Dan here. I know he's like, I don't know. But I definitely think we will post some resources and maybe confer with Dan on the side as to the Mm -hmm. best resources to lead our listeners to on that. But it is truly. I mean, it's easy to sit here in the U.S. surrounded by, like, my boxes of Dexcoms and Mm -hmm. Omnipods, uh, thankful for my my great coverage through my full-time job for my healthcare, and and be like, oh, you know, I live literally, like, I share a block with the housing projects here in New York, and it's like, you know, we all have on, like, you can sit here and be like, oh, we all have access to the same healthcare, but that's like so fundamentally untrue. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's like, it's very, even though we're in very different places in the world and socioeconomic wise, and literally just on like living on the same street, it can just be, it's, we all have to advocate for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that the NHS does a really good job in a lot of things. And the fact that your life-saving liquid called insulin is accessible to you no matter what is such a huge win for so many people listening to this podcast who Mm -hmm. maybe don't even can't afford insulin pumps or can't afford, you know, their insulin. That is just such an eye-opening difference that, you know, you don't, it's easy to sit here and be like, you don't have to live in the U.S., but if anything happens and it's, you know, life or death, there are options out there that it's easy for me to sit here and say that. But I'm just saying there's a world outside and it's very interesting to hear the different um, the different ways that we're all advocating for ourselves, mm-hmm. no matter where you are, whether it's if you had a misdiagnosis or if you're trying to get access to insulin or if you're trying to get access to better care through an insulin pump. Um, and that is my soapbox I will step off of now. so but yeah and i i do want to say the i the nhs is is great but as i said at the start as with any great organization there are issues within the system as well and i think as you as you said as well like being your own advocate is a big thing when living with type 1 diabetes Mm -hmm. yes 100 percent. that's like our favorite thing to say be your own advocate it's uh, true, but yeah, exactly. No matter what the challenges are, or no matter what the healthcare system is, that's always going to be true for us. Unfortunately, that you have to to fight for yourself, and and I think we've all learned to be very effective at that, uh, or at least try to be. And so, speaking on to kind of shift gears a little bit, I know um, you work for JDRF in the UK. So, can you tell us kind of? I know you're you're on the HR side of things, like you mentioned. But um, what is what's JDRF like there? It's it's fun to kind of compare and contrast how things how things are over on that side of the ocean. So JDRF in the UK is a lot smaller than 
JDRF in the the US. So we mm-hmm. have five offices across the country and mm-hmm. about 50 members of staff. So we, it's substantially smaller than JDRF uh, in the yeah in the US. But mm-hmm. we still have for me personally it's it's a it's a great place to work and it's great that I'm able to work with other people who have type 1 I know what's going on in terms of type 1 diabetes Mm -hmm. research and the advances being made there I I I I I like working there and think that it came at a good point in my life when I was really struggling with living with type one and had started to turn the corner and then the job came, the job came up and I was able, I was successful in applying and actually working at JDRF has opened, it really opened up my eyes to living with type one Mm -hmm. and helped me to understand my, understand the condition a lot better than, than I previously did. So yeah, it's a really great organization for me, both professionally and personally. Wonderful. And I think it, it stresses the importance of having that community and how much of a difference that makes in, one, the, the psychological aspects of living with mm. this condition, but also the physical aspects, because I, I feel the same. It wasn't until I was really around other diabetics and exposed to more things that I started taking care of myself better also. Um, you learn stuff that you don't always learn from your doctors. And and I think it just gives you that, that nudge to be like, Oh, I should take care of myself better because X, Y, and Z reasons. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And that was actually starting to work at JDRF was the first time that I had ever made apart from going to see my uh, diabetes team at hospital was the first time I'd actually been in the same room as somebody else living with type one and at Mm. that point I was living with type one for I don't know maybe 13 14 years if not a bit more and that's a long time to feel alone in a disease yeah yeah, exactly (laughs) and (laughs) you're you're right because I did I did feel alone up until that point and actually by working there that helped me um, having a conversation with a colleague that helped me to de- make the decision to get an insulin pump because I was able to confront that that fear of being labelled a bad diabetic by actually mm-hmm. speaking to somebody who had an insulin pump and was able to explain the benefits to me and was also mm-hmm. in a position where they didn't want a pump at first and then when they moved on to a pump it was amazing for them so um so yeah it's it's helped me so much that's amazing. And I know that um, the type one is just one aspect of your health journey. Uh, we we mentioned briefly earlier that you are a kidney transplant. Um, is that something that you care to talk about? I probably should have asked you before we start talking about this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's fine. So I, if, I've, if I've posted about it on my profile on Instagram, I'm happy to talk about it because it's that's, the most, that's the most public. Game. I was like, I know he's posted about it, but yeah. still, like, putting you on blast right now. All right. Yeah. So that's why. So in um, 2013, I was diagnosed with chronic kidney disease. Now, mm-hmm. I do believe that it's a com- it was a complication of type of type, type one. one. Mm-hmm. There is a family history with kidney problems, but I personally believe in the 
medical professionals believe it's most likely to be um, the correlation of, yeah with with type one which is understandable considering the years that I wasn't looking after myself the best I could and so with chronic kidney disease gradually over time your kidney function declines and over a period of five years my kidney function slowly declined to the point where with chronic kidney disease um, or kidney failure your you get to your final options are dialysis or having a kidney transplant mm-hmm. and like insulin is the best treatment for type 1 diabetes a kidney transplant is the best treatment for somebody who has kidney failure and mm-hmm. I was very very fortunate enough to have a, a kidney transplant without having to um, go on dialysis I had a live donor who was a family member so I'm very fortunate in that mm-hmm. sense but that, wow so so yeah I'm I'm I'm, re- <laughs> I'm really fortunate and but that whole journey through kidney kidney disease taught me a lot about health and actually how just understanding my type one better because I was mm-hmm. expecting everyone to um who had kidney disease to almost have diabetes either type 1 type 2 any sort of diabetes but then I when I joined different forums I saw actually people get kidney disease but even if they're healthy something can happen mm-hmm. and that really opened up my mind because over the years you're you're just bombarded with if you don't look after yourself you're going to get complications you're going to do this you're going to get this mm-hmm. and I had these messages just going around in my head and I really felt like a failure because I and I felt guilty and I felt embarrassed and ashamed because I had those complications that I was warned about but it actually got me to a place where I was able to reason with myself that yes you do have kidney disease you can't change it but also other people have the same this can have kidney disease and kidney failure so Mm -hmm. you don't necessarily need to put all of these emotions onto the fact that you've got type 1 diabetes and kidney failure because kidney failure can happen to anyone and that really helped me just going through that whole um, kidney disease journey and actually leading up to to transplantation and just going through the transplant is is a really just just that as well when you need an organ from somebody else to to live and it's not like mm-hmm. you're asking somebody can you lend me some money you're <laughs> you, you know that you you have an extra kidney can I have it yeah, like... <laughs> yeah. and so it, it's a difficult conversation to to have with mm-hmm. family Anyone. friends yeah and you've also got this guilt going on inside you that oh I if I did if I looked after myself then I wouldn't have to ask this question so there's so much going going on in your mind but yeah, I I learned a lot through that journey, particularly yeah, within 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 myself and my understanding of my type one completely changed there. And actually, being able to talk about the kidney transplant in the hope that if there's anyone else going through living with type one or any sort of diabetes, any diabetes, and have experiencing kidney failure, that knowing that there is the other side to it and mm-hmm. you you really can't change the past you can learn from it and do your best today and just try to keep 
keep moving forward. Yeah, it sounds like like you had this um, moment of acceptance, of acknowledging that, you know, needing a kidney transplant is not a mark on your character or who you are as a person. Mm. It's just something your body needs to survive. And I'm, yeah. I'm so glad for you that you kind of reached that point of accepting this and hopefully releasing some of that guilt. Yes. Miriam's yeah. also a licensed mental health counselor, if you're unaware. <laughs> I don't know if that just came across, but she's not like, just like some average schmo, like telling you, oh, yes, this is your moment to come to a uh, realization. <laughs> like this happens in all of my conversations with Miriam. It's great. I love you, Miriam. Um, but also a lot of these feelings and feelings of guilt can be can be found in any type of diabetes. Um, mm-hmm. I know that there's a lot of misinformation out there, especially between the differences. But even for people with type 2 diabetes, Diabetes. A lot of things have to do with um, with Did your I predisposition, do this to myself? Yeah. exactly, and it's mm-hmm. family history, and it's mm-hmm. so much more. Even things that go into the American diet, things can be pointed to to food manufacturers. There's just so much that goes on behind the scenes, and what people don't know, and what we ourselves don't know, like. For us with type 1, it is an autoimmune disease. There's nothing we could have done to stop this, mm-hmm. uh, especially in the year 2020. You know, maybe in 30 years from now, we could take a pill that would make our beta cells start working. Like, who knows? But as of right now, it is what it is. And this guilt that I know I feel when my blood sugar is high or low um, from something that I did, I mean, we're one of the only diseases in existence where we're dosing insulin, you know, something that could save us or kill us at the same time. And it is terrifying. Um, but having to go through a kidney transplant on top of all of that, which by no means like you are not the only person I know you don't need me to tell you this, but like we have listeners who have are either on the track of needing to receive a kidney or have been gone through a transplant and, Um, it's, you know, it's great that you're, uh, you're speaking out about it and are a resource for it because that's something that's such a unique experience that a lot of, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, a good number of people do go through. Mm -hmm. So again, I will direct everyone to following Dan on Instagram and listening to his (laughs) podcast to learn more. Absolutely. Um, And yeah, I think living with diabetes, needing a transplant, it's hard enough. And, and this is what we do as humans. It's like, well, this is already really bad. Let me throw some guilt on top of it too. To make myself seem feel even worse and and we all do that and no matter what it is and so it's part of the human condition but I'm I'm really happy that you're able to kind of acknowledge this and push through it and and on that note I'm curious how are you feeling post-transplant how has life been after the transplant so that was two that was two years ago in um, okay. April this year so in terms of physically I'm I'm feeling so much so much better mm-hmm. I think mentally that was that was the most difficult part as well so even though I reached that acceptance level what really mm-hmm. took me time to recover was I didn't really understand how big an operation a transplant was right mm-hmm. and which might sound a bit silly but I I kind of just yeah we'll do it I'll be fine once I'm back physically it's all good it was only afterwards after the operation that mentally I realized actually I've been through I've been through a lot so that took around I'd say another 12 to 18 12 to 18 months where um Mm -hmm. I spoke to a a psychologist a renal psychologist after that and that was really helpful dealing with the the 
post trans pre and post transplant stuff that I was that mm-hmm. I was going through and um and I think you quite rightly say that, that there's so much going on in in your mind where yes I accepted the kidney disease but then the transplant brought its own complications with it as well that I then had to navigate through and even though I was fine physically there was all this other stuff going on mentally as well but I'm I'm happy to 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 be here today to be able to help others who are going through the same journey and to share my my experiences and um yeah I'm just I'm really thankful to to be here yeah and we're we're glad you are too and and I'm also curious how that at what point did you start your platform on Instagram because I know you have quite a following and was was this having this platform was that part of your your journey to your recovery so now that you've said that about my journey mm-hmm. to recovery I would say yes because I've actually never thought of it like that so I started mm-hmm. my my profile October 2018 because I okay. realized actually I've been living with type 1 for for over 20 years and I had gone through the the transplant the kidney stuff and I also live with diabetic retinopathy as well and I really just wanted a place to actually share my experiences and that's kind of how I thought of it at at the time but Mm -hmm. by doing that I realized that there were times in my journeys where I felt alone and I didn't really want anyone else to feel alone or to feel embarrassed that they were living with complications or type one can be hard at, at times so that was the real driver for starting my the platform and actually yeah it probably was part of the um recovery process as well I didn't think mm-hmm. of it back then but I now you've said it it makes complete sense yeah and I think and we talk about this all the time like the power of community the power of having shared experiences with people is so healing and so crucial to our, our survival as, as we all kind of share this, share this thing. Yeah. yeah. And I'm, I was just going one, I was just going to, and it's been really rewarding as well when I've posted about say my kidney disease or my transplant or my diabetic retinopathy stuff that I've had people contact me to say, I'm going through the same thing. What were your experiences like? I'm really scared. They, they've they had the same emotions that I've had. But at that time, I didn't have anyone to talk to. Mm-hmm. So it's nice that people ha- feel that they can reach out to me and talk to me. And I'm able to, to help them as well. That's literally one of the best feelings and something when our when our listeners, if you will, <laughs> reach out to us on any platform, just knowing that we're not all shouting into a void and that there are mm-hmm. people that our words are resonating with and that even though we all have our own unique experiences, there mm-hmm. are aspects to everything that really help brings people together. And I think that out of like this weird world where, you know, we DM someone on Instagram and have a longer <laughs> podcast, yeah. um, it's, uh, it, it, it has the the outcome are these amazing fruitful conversations and new perspectives and new pals and just like so many things that I feel like the creators of Instagram maybe didn't think of yeah. uh, or maybe they did who knows but <laughs> 
Um, is there anything else that you want to talk about? I know, like, I feel like we could have, we should have you on again because I didn't, we didn't get to like half the things that I'm so intrigued by. Um, I want to hear more about your, about, uh, your podcast also. Um, but is there anything else that we should touch on? We are at the 30 minute mark, but honestly, like we can go longer. I'm sure people (laughs) want to listen. Like, yeah, I let's let's push this to the 40 minute mark and let's just everyone buckle up. We're, we're here for a ride. But there's we're we're noticing more of the systemic racism in our country. Hmm. Um, and so we're curious your perspective being in the UK, sort of what is what is the perspective you're seeing about America from where you stand and also in the UK? Um, I imagine there's still systemic racism as well. And so if you could kind of touch on that experience and how, if, if you notice any disparities within the healthcare system based on race that, that you've experienced. You specifically, you don't need to speak for anyone else. Yeah. Just. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was just going to throw that in that these, this is just my own personal thoughts and experiences. I can't speak for, for everyone, but mm-hmm. I think what, where or what I'm seeing in in the US is that and it's quite maybe not on the same level but quite similar to the UK where mm-hmm. black people black voices have been oppressed and silenced for so long and mm-hmm. been saying this is wrong this is wrong this is wrong for a number of years and you just not being not being heard and it has finally reached a point where actually enough is enough and and that's what that's what i'm seeing and and i can completely understand i can understand that i feel it and my own just seeing and i know there have been a number of black people in america who have died at the hands of the police but particularly seeing george floyd's murder was for me that was really triggering because Mm -hmm. it was just so inhumane to to do that to another human being and at no point was there any regard to did there seem to be any regard to his life and that was that was scary that was traumatic for me to see it as a as a black man and that really got to me for 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 a number of days just seeing that um and just moving to the UK and when it comes to institutional and systematic racism it's there it's always been there I've been aware of racism from when I was a very a very young a young age like most black children are particularly when you go through the education system I was uh quite I was usually in the top one, two or three um, during primary school. So that's like elementary school. And mm-hmm. I would have teachers, all, not all the time. I'd have some teachers who would want me to do really well and other teachers who would try to to hold me back in comparison to the other one or two children in the class who, who were white. And mm-hmm. as a child, you realise, well, what's the difference between me and me and them and you internalize that oh it's the color of my my skin and you realize that and you 
when you're growing up around family, you hear stories of situations that they've been through growing up that they've experienced to, to that during that day. And particularly in the UK, growing up as a, a black man, there was the death of a black teen, teenager. His name was Stephen Lawrence. And although he wasn't killed by police, he was killed by a group by five white men. What that what that led to his death his death led to was a report which found that the Metropolitan Police in London were institutionally racist. So that when you hear that, you also realise well actually within the state the police force that is supposed to protect me as a black citizen, there's racism there. And although as maybe not I can't draw direct direct parallels to the UK police system and the US police system mm-hmm. but the fact that you've got these two systems there that are supposed to protect citizens but actually they unfairly target black citizens is that well 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 what's what's going on here this 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 just isn't this isn't right so I've had that to to deal with growing up and moving to nowadays what we've what seen in the uk across all cities is that people understand that black lives matter george floyd's murder has triggered worldwide events and we've seen and just across all cities in the uk there have been protests talking about black lives matter and which which obviously they do and one thing that I might be going off on the tangent here, but I've had conversations <laughs> with people and they say, you might say black lives matter. And they say, yeah, but all lives matter. And then, I hate that. I can't. Please continue. <laughs> <laughs> and what happens is you're, you're having to say that black lives matter isn't saying all lives don't matter. Mm-hmm. It's saying that black lives matter and in essence, as black people, we're asking for equality to for our lives to matter as much as they matter to as much as other lives matter because we know that all lives matter. That's why we want equality. And to have an argument against, in effect, a, a group of people in in the world saying we want our lives to be, we want to have, we want to be equal. We want our lives to to matter as we see other lives matter and we don't want this systematic or institutional racism and for somebody to fight you for that point of view I found really difficult and what happens in those arguments is that arguments discussions is that you can walk away and I've walked away from one and I'm like are they trying to gaslight me because what I'm saying makes sense but you're arguing against everything that I'm saying so um so yeah I don't know if I've waffled on or if I've made any sense, but um, you've made a lot, a lot of, sense of sense and a lot yeah. of important, yeah. important um, points. And I think mm-hmm. that, unfortunately, I mean, I can't really speak for anyone in this situation, but I think that unfortunately there are a lot of people that are trying to gaslight and a lot of. Um, unconsciously, I don't. Yeah, I don't, I don't yeah, think well, people I think there are, are subconscious. I mean, mm-hmm. I've come up 
So I'm actually, Miriam and I are both from the southern part of the United States where, um, where unfortunately a lot of, uh, a lot of police brutality towards black people has, has happened in my own hometown of Jacksonville. There have been some horrible cases and it's a, a big reason why I wanted to move up north and have a different perspective on things and get away from things, but you can't really get away from something that's systemic in the U S and that's something that I've learned and seen and watched my friends go through firsthand. And no matter if I was in Jacksonville or in Boston, there are some slight differences that they have told me about, but it isn't, it's systemic and it's not, it's not an answer, um, to just move. But, um, it's every like your perspective is so valid and you brought up so many important points and I feel like we could go on and have an entire podcast dedicated to it but I appreciate you being succinct and really getting your point across um in a way that I think is just so important for everyone including our listeners so Miriam was there anything you wanted to add yeah, I think what's yeah, your perspective is just a reminder to all of us that this isn't a this isn't a US problem. This is a in international worldwide issue that we're dealing with that's been like generations after generation after generation has been instilled in in our systems and I really appreciate your perspective and for being so open and honest with us and like Emily said we could talk about this for a very long time but I I hope these con- conversations continue this isn't like a a one and done type thing and I've really appreciated and and enjoyed talking to you, Dan, and hearing your perspective. And you have such a calm and soothing voice. <laughs> I feel like I could listen to you talk for hours. So I appreciate you you coming on. And I think this is a good time for you to share with us. How can people, one, find you, but two, um, if you want to tell us about your podcast as well, we'd love our listeners to have a chance to, to learn more about you. Cool. Um, just to say thank you for thank you for inviting me on, and probably just one last point that this is yes. th- what we're experiencing now is definitely a movement and for the long term, mm-hmm. and not a not a one off. So, right. exactly. um, if people want to to find me, I'm on Instagram. My handle is at t1d underscore dan. Um, I'm most active on Instagram, so I would suggest yeah just to follow me there. <laughs> Um, and my podcast is called the Talking Type One Podcast. So I basically speak to members of the diabetes community and interview them about their lives living with with Type One. I speak to people who are diagnosed with Type One as a child. I've spoken to as an adult. I've covered um, ex- talking about exercise and nutrition. I speak to parents. It's I view it as very much for the community, by the community, and mm-hmm. it. I I just speak to yeah. There's no there's no particular criteria to be on the show. So um, if anyone's interested, they can come on and, and tell their story. And it's just a it's a really nice opportunity to to speak to members of the community and get stories out there because I'm sure they'll resonate with at least one person out there. So um yeah, that's the podcast in a nutshell 
Well, thank you so much, Dan. This is Miriam's favorite part of the episode where I wrap up and just say where you can find everyone. Um, But I do want to say that I can't speak for Miriam, but I'm sure we'd love to have you back on the podcast. I feel like there's so much more we could talk about. Um, I know that you're just such an interesting human and everything that you're doing and fighting for is so important. Um, And especially JDRF in the UK, like what's up with that? That's so cool. Okay. (laughs) So I should cut that out because I cannot stop rambling. Send help. Um, All right, here we go. So if my rambling didn't completely turn you off, please follow us on Instagram at pancreas underscore pals on Facebook at pancreas pals PP. Sign to our DMs on either. We love to hear from you or hit us up on email because people still do that. Pancreas pals one, two, three at gmail.com. Um, be sure to follow Dan. He just said it, but I'm going to say it again on Instagram at T1D underscore Dan and follow his podcast at Talking Type One, the number one podcast on Instagram. And be sure to give all of us a listen. And I think it's really important that we're continuing to um to, to discuss all the important things in the world right now and type one and healthcare systems and everything. And I'm gonna stop talking now. I hope everyone has a great rest of their week. Thank you again, Dan. Thank and you. Yeah. Yes. All right. Have a good one, everyone. Bye, everyone.